This message by Mike Pluniak was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Mike serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Well, good morning. You can go ahead and grab your seats. You can open your Bibles this morning to Micah chapter 5. Micah is in the Old Testament in the Minor Prophets right after the book of Jonah. It's the final message in our Advent series, O Come, Let Us Adore Him, which is our goal today. We're going to be looking at two passages this morning, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament, Luke chapter 2, which we'll get to later in the second half of the message. But both connected because they are talking about the same small town of Bethlehem. And while you're turning to Micah chapter 5, I want to tell you a story about another small town, Gander, Newfoundland. I think that's how you say that. Gander is a small town of about 10,000 residents. It's doubtful you would have ever heard of Gander, except it was suddenly thrust into the spotlight on September 11th, 2001. Gander was a small town with a large airport. The airport was from post-World War II, and it had been used as a refueling post for planes crossing the Atlantic Ocean, and since that wasn't really needed anymore with new technology, the, the airport was largely abandoned, and the small town lived in relevant oblivion. As U.S. airspace was suddenly and dramatically closed because of the terrorist attacks, 38 passenger planes carrying almost 7,000 people were redirected to the small town of Gander. And the town rose to the occasion. It's an amazing story. The grocery store emptied its shelves to provide food and basic necessities. People opened their homes to strangers and fed them and allowed them to take showers and allowed them to stay there. People they had never met before, they cared for them. The bus drivers on Gander were on strike and they came off strike to transport 7,000 people to the elementary school which housed them. Uh, the wrestling mats in the gym became beds for all these people. They closed down their hockey league for the week, which was a big deal in Gander. And they turned the hockey rink into the largest indoor refrigerator in Canada at the time. People donated cell phones so people could call family and let them know they were okay. Checked on loved ones in New York City who were firefighters and police officers. One traveler, as he left Gander, said he had lost all faith in humanity, but that was restored as he encountered the kindness of the people of that small Canadian town. They tried to pay them money, and the, the people in the town refused. And they set up a donation box if you wanted to donate. I think hundreds of thousands of dollars came in in donations and set up scholarships for that small town. Gander was unexpectedly and suddenly thrust into the spotlight on that day, and it rose to the occasion. Our text today is about another sleepy little town that's about to be thrust 
into the spotlight. The difference is this little town we are going to read about is going to be the town where history is going to be changed. This little town is thrust into heaven's spotlight as scores of angels sing over it, as shepherds flock to it, as wise men travel to behold the Savior of the world in this sleepy little town. Another difference is this little town had 700 years of warning of what God was going to do there. As the prophet Micah miraculously told God's people where to look for the coming Messiah. Look with me at Micah chapter 5 verse 2. This is God's word for us today. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too Little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. May God's word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, direct our hearts to the glory of Jesus this morning. I know Bethlehem is a familiar Christmas topic. Even this week as I was exercising, a friend was asking me about Bethlehem. He was asking me questions like, how long was the star over it? And and how long until the wise men visited it? And how long did Jesus stay there? And I was saying, what's up with these questions? He's like, we were watching this cartoon and it just got everything wrong. It's like everything's happening in one night. And then I'm reading my Bible and I'm not sure what's going on there. And I know we've heard a lot about Bethlehem. But I pray this morning we would see with fresh eyes the significance of why God would choose this insignificant town to display his glory. What Micah is doing is he's saying that out of this insignificant town would come the most significant person ever born, the Messiah Jesus. And this morning, I just want us to come and adore him. Let's just marvel at what God has done with so many things and so many engagements and so much going on. Let's pause and let's just adore Christ this morning. Let's enjoy him. There's lessons here from Micah 5 that teach us about who God is, what kind of God he is, how he works. It's important to know God so we can worship him and trust him and love him. And we learn so much from one verse about who our God is. Point number one this morning as we come to adore Christ. God loves using insignificant things to display his glory. Pray God would give us fresh eyes to see Bethlehem in a new way today. In Micah 5, 2, in our text, it's contrasting how insignificant Bethlehem is with the greatness of the one who would be born there. You may remember this summer we did a series on the minor prophets. This is where we get the payoff for that series. Because the minor prophets are all about 
The promise of a Savior who would rescue us and deliver us from sin. These prophets were only called minor because of their brevity. They're not as long-winded as the major prophets. And though their message is brief, it's powerful. As they address God's people, you may remember they were addressing God's people about their sin. And you had all these things going on in Israel at this time where their rulers hated justice. They perverted the law. They took bribes. They made deals with other nations for their own benefit while ignoring God's call on their lives. The priests were teaching for money. It says their offerings were no longer pleasing to God. The false prophets would tell you whatever you wanted to hear for the right price. That's the context that Micah is prophesying into. And because of their sin, they're in a time of national crisis. And specifically in Micah, they are under siege. Look back at chapter 4, verse 11. It says, now many nations are assembled against you. They are surrounded by these other nations. They're being overtaken. Chapter 5, verse 1, the second half of that verse, you can see it says, With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. This is a sign of shame. It's humiliating to be slapped on the cheek. And that's what these nations are doing. They're surrounding them. They're besieging them. They're taking them over. They're humiliating them. And they're surrounded. There's nothing they can do. And Micah in chapter 5 verse 2 begins looking to this little town of Bethlehem for their hope. God is drawing our attention to this little town for our hope this morning. Look at the first half of verse 2 once again. This is what Micah is drawing our attention to. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Ephrathah, by the way, is just the region where Bethlehem was. There's actually two Bethlehems in our Old Testament. And this is showing which one he's talking about. Like saying Knoxville, Tennessee. So he's directing us to which Bethlehem he's talking about. Bethlehem was a small town. When they named the major cities of the Old Testament, Bethlehem didn't make the list. It was too little. And this prophecy would have been odd because Bethlehem was very insignificant. That's what Micah is getting it, calling it little. That's why he's calling it so small. It's an insignificant town. It's not impressive. It doesn't have a fort or a palace or a temple. It doesn't have an army. It's not a city you would look to for military force when you are surrounded by enemies. There's not some hotline to Bethlehem you're going to call. You would never call Bethlehem for help in a moment like that. Even the name Bethlehem means house of bread. Not exactly intimidating, you know? Maybe they were known for their delightful pastries, but they weren't known for their army. They weren't known for their military force. And that a ruler would come out of this little town is almost humorous. But that's how God works. That's how God gets the glory. God loves using insignificant things for his glory. You may remember that this is not the first time God 
is using Bethlehem for his glory. You might remember Bethlehem from our series on 1st and 2nd Samuel. When God rejected Saul as the king, and God tells Samuel to go to Jesse in Bethlehem, who had eight sons. And God was saying, I'm going to call a new king from one of these sons of Jesse in Bethlehem. And these were impressive boys. Samuel gets to Bethlehem, he finds Jesse, and he says, hey, I need your sons, and I want them all lined up in front of me. And so seven of Jesse's sons come, and they line up in front of Samuel, and he sees the oldest son. You know, they're, I guess they're lined up, oldest to youngest maybe, and he looks at the oldest son, and this is an impressive man. He is strong and he is tall and he looks like a warrior. And Samuel thinks, surely this is the one God has called to be the king of Israel. And listen to what God says in 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. I haven't called him to be king. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so it's not the oldest son. And so Samuel looks at the next son, the next in line. And God says, no, it's not this one either. Samuel goes, okay, what about number three here? And it's not number three, and it's not number four, and it's not number five, it's not number six, it's not number seven. And finally, Samuel says, do you have any other sons? And Jesse says, why, yes, I have one more, but he's out in the field with the sheep. He plays guitar and he writes poetry. He's not going to be the king. And so they call, and of course you know the story, this is the one God chooses. And you know him as King David. You see a pattern here with God? Small town, the smallest son, small in stature, the youngest one. We see a pattern here with how God works. The significance of Bethlehem is that this is where King David was born. That's the point in Micah 5. It's not a significant town. It's not impressive. But this is where King David was born. I know if you've ever driven through small towns and they always have signs as you come into town with like their high school or middle school state championships, you know, high school girls volleyball won state in 1994. Or maybe they have some tagline, friendliest city in America or home of the 100-pound cheese ball, or, you know, like, Sevierville is the home of Dolly Parton. If Bethlehem had a sign as you entered, it would have said, birthplace of King David. It was King David's town. And God had made a covenant, a promise to King David, that there would be an heir of his who would reign on his throne forever. And so the prophet is contrasting the small size and insignificance of Bethlehem and the mighty king who would come from there. Look at verse 2 again. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little, it's a small town to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me 
one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. When he says, his coming forth is from of old, they believe, commentaries believe that this is referring to the promise made to King David. And the promise that a descendant of his would sit on the throne forever. But Micah takes it a step further. Not only is his coming forth from of old, but it's from ancient days. That term in the Old Testament is always used referring to God. In Psalm, it's the the word everlasting. In Psalm 90 verse 2, it says, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is the preexistent one. His line would go back to King David, but it would go back even further than that. From everlasting to everlasting, that's where this king is coming from. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's going to be greater than King David because he was before King David. And so Micah is saying, yes, he's going to be fully man. He's going to be in the line of David. He's the one that was promised to King David, but he's also fully God. He is everlasting God. As Isaiah says in chapter 9, he's mighty God, this one who would come. And his reign is going to be greater than King David's reign. In verse 4, you see in the second half there that his reign is to the ends of the earth. He shall be great to the ends of the earth as we sing in Handel's Messiah. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. You just hear it coming out. His reign is forever. And he came from Bethlehem, this little town. Listen to John Piper. God chooses something small, quiet, out of the way, and does something there that changes the course of history and eternity. Here's the question. Why? Why does God do this? Because when he acts this way, We can't boast in the merits or achievements of men, but only in the glorious mercy of God. He wants to get all the glory. And it's just like our God to use an insignificant town to bring forth the King of kings and Lord of lords because He gets all the glory. He loves using the weak and the lowly to shame the proud. Because he gets all the glory and it becomes evident to everybody. God did this. God did this. This is who our God is and this is how our God works. The Christmas message screams, God did this. This was a work of God. May he receive all the glory for what he has done. God loves using insignificant things to display his glory. And here's the thing. I think you're going to find this pattern in your life as well. Because this is who God is. This is how God works. This is what God does. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
26 through 29. Think about your calling. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chose you and me not because we were impressive or significant, but exactly because we were unimpressive and insignificant. I keep seeing this message. I saw it again this week, and it drives me crazy every time I see it. I see it in, uh, it's in the schools, it's in magazines, it's slogans, it's like on billboards now, and the message is, I am enough. I see it everywhere. In one of my daughter's classrooms, it's up on the board over and over. I am enough. You are enough. I am enough. And I'm trying to figure out, what are they saying here? Like, what's the point? This is everywhere. And I think the goal is to motivate self-confidence and self-worth and self-sufficiency. It really just promotes pride. I am enough. I can do this. I can be whatever. I'm enough. Listen, Scripture encourages us to say the opposite. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. Put it up on billboards. I'm not enough. I am weak. I'm sinful. I am frail. I am not self-sufficient. I am dependent on God. I'm not enough. But... God loves using the weak for his glory. But God chose us when we were sinners. But God had mercy on me. So the great thing about this is we get to boast in our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon us. God loves using insignificant things to display his glory so we can say, to you, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This Christmas morning, let's give God all the glory. To you be the glory. Out of Bethlehem, he came from Bethlehem. This would be shocking to God's people, but it's all for his glory. God loves using insignificant things for his glory. Point number two. God loves keeping all his promises to us. He loves keeping all his promises to us. It's not just that God does keep his promises. That's when I first wrote that. I put God keeps all his promises to us. And I thought, no, that's not strong enough. It's not just that he does it. It's not like God's reluctantly going, well said Bethlehem, I guess we're going to have to go there, you know, because I did say that and I want to be true to my word. I don't think it's reluctance. God loves keeping his promises. He is zealous to fulfill his promises to us. That's what we see in the Christmas story. Flip in your Bibles over to Luke chapter 2. Told you we're going to have two texts this morning, Micah 5 and Luke 
chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Because in Luke 2, we get to see how God fulfills his promises. We get to see God make promises, and then we get to see God fulfill promises. That's why I love our Bibles. I love our Bible reading plan. On week one, when you begin reading that, you're going to begin seeing these promises, and immediately in the New Testament, how God fulfills his promises. And it's not how we would expect. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And you know this story, but just think about Micah 5 as you read it. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration under Quirinius when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Of course it did at that time. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Micah was prophesying over 700 years before this would happen, telling us where to look for the Messiah, to look in Bethlehem. It's why when the wise men came to Jerusalem and Herod asked, where is he to be born? They looked at Micah and they said, well, God's word says Bethlehem. Let's look there. And Luke gives us a glimpse into how God fulfills his promises to us. How he orchestrates all these things at the perfect time and the perfect moment for the birth of the Messiah. And we see in verse 1, God was sovereignly using Caesar to accomplish his sovereign will and accomplish his purposes God directs the heart of the king and he used Caesar's pride to bring Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. This registration or census was obviously motivated to advance the glory of Caesar. The Roman Empire was growing and expanding and they're building. And to show the number of citizens Caesar ruled over, when he showed this, it was going to advance his glory and his name on the earth. And the census was used to raise tax money. It's all motivated by his pride. But God is using that to advance his glory. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He says, Little did the haughty Roman emperor and his officer Quirinius think that they were only instruments in the hand of the God of Israel. And we're only carrying out the eternal purposes of the king of kings. Little did they think that they were helping to lay the foundation of a kingdom before which the empires of this world would all go down one day and Roman idolatry pass away. They thought they were building their kingdom when God was using them to build his kingdom. And you have to see 
the sovereign hand of God in orchestrating all these things and all these details. God is working. God is fulfilling his promises. God is accomplishing his will. And God did this through other prophets as well. We already talked about this during communion this morning. There are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah so that we would know without a shadow of a doubt who the Savior was. There would be no question who the Savior was. God told us exactly what to look for. Isaiah said, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. It's like God saying, hey, when you, when you hear and see a virgin giving birth, there's a little sign for you. This is the Savior of the world. Prophecies that he would preach to the poor and brokenhearted. That he would perform miracles to confirm his ministry. It's exactly what we find in Jesus' life. Prophecies that he would be called the Son of God. That there would be a prophet who prepares the way for him, which we find in John the Baptist. That he would be anointed with the Holy Spirit, which we see at his baptism. That he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, which happens before his trial and death. Prophecies that he would be despised and rejected by men. That he would be afflicted and wounded for our transgressions. That he would be mocked. Prophecies that his hands and feet would be pierced. Every single prophecy we find fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because he is the one God promised to send to save us from our sins. He told us what to look for. The outspoken atheist Bertrand Russell was asked in an interview what evidence it would take for him to believe in God. Listen to what he says. He says, well, if I heard a voice from heaven and it predicted a series of things and they came to pass, then I guess I'd have to believe there's some kind of supernatural being. That is exactly what happened. At Christmas, we celebrate all the promises have come true. Every last one. Every single one, God said. Every prophecy we find fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When I was a kid, my parents would always make us make a list for what we wanted for Christmas. And every year, the exact same thing happened. I would get out the piece of paper and the pen and I would write one or two things on the list because I wanted to make sure what I got for Christmas. I knew what I wanted, and so I'd write the two things I wanted. I'd hand the list to my mom, and every single year, my mom would make me add to the list because she wanted me to be surprised. And every year, I thought, but I really don't want these other things. Don't surprise me. Just give me what I want, you know? I don't want to be surprised, but she said, well, I, I want you to be surprised. And You've probably already heard I had a bad habit of opening presents ahead of time, so I never really was surprised, but that's against the point at all. But she wanted us to be surprised. She didn't want me knowing what I was getting, so she made me make a big list. Listen, God doesn't want us to be surprised. He made a big list, but he fulfills everything on the list. I mean, he made a huge list, and he just checks every single one of them off in Jesus Christ because he wants us to know he is the savior of the world. Listen, if you're not a follower of Christ, 
If you're here this morning and, and you're not a believer, you haven't put your faith in Christ, thanks for being here. We are so thankful that you have come. And I want to encourage you this morning. Look at these prophecies. Look at what God has said because he fulfills every single one of them in Jesus Christ. I don't think God is hiding from us. God loves revealing himself to us. He wants us to know. He doesn't want it to be a secret that Jesus is the Savior. He had angels in the sky singing it and declaring it because he wants you to know today this is the Savior of the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And when you turn from your sins and you put your faith in him as the Messiah, the Savior, God saves you from your sins. They even said, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save us from our sins. That's why he came. That's why he was born. Everything he did was to save you from your sins. And this morning, you can trust in him. You can pray to God and say, I believe Jesus was the Savior. Forgive me for my sins. And God will save you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God's not hiding. He fulfills all of his promises. He loves making promises to us so that he can fulfill them because he gets all the glory when he does that. He fulfills all of his promises. And I love verses 6 and 7. I mean, you want to talk about an understatement here. Luke, I mean, this is an understatement. Look, let's finish here with verses 6 and 7. It says, after the census and they traveled to Bethlehem because this is where God said the Savior would be born, listen to Luke's description of what happened. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth, okay, pretty simple there, to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The Catholic Church has historically taught that Mary had a painless childbirth. That's why it's so simple here, they say. It was a miraculously painless birth. Listen, I don't think that's anywhere in the text or in the Bible. It doesn't lead us to think or suggest that. But they read these verses and they think, oh, it was time for her to give birth. And she gave birth. It must have been painless and simple. That's not the point here of why Luke writes this. I think the emphasis is on his humble beginnings. There's no place for him in the inn. He's laid in a manger. He's wrapped in swaddling cloths. This is the king of kings and lord of lords. And just born and, and described in such simplicity. Just like Bethlehem was an insignificant town, this baby's beginning is small and seemingly insignificant. And what you can't miss is the humility of Jesus Christ here. It's a small baby in a small town in a no-name barn who is the King of kings and Lord of lords who is one to whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And he humbled himself and became a man and is born in this cave, this stable, laid in a manger. If anything, he should have been born in the grandest 
palace on earth, but he became poor and lowly for us. Though he was rich, for our sake, he became poor. He associates with us. The humility of Christ, the Christmas message, should put our proud hearts in check this week. I mean, it's just humbling. It's so humbling. You read verse 6 and 7, it's so simple. It's the Savior of the world. I mean, angels are singing about it, and he's just laid in this manger. It's so humbling. Listen to Matthew Henry, the Puritan. Apply this to us. Some application for us here this week. He well knew how unwilling we are to be meanly lodged. He's a Puritan. It's a little dated, but you understand his point here. How, how unwilling we are to be meanly lodged, clothed, or fed. How we desire to have our children decorated and indulged. How apt the poor are to envy the rich. And how prone the rich to disdain the poor. But when we by faith view the Son of God being made man, lying in a manger, our vanity, ambition, and envy are checked. We cannot with this object rightly before us seek great things for ourselves or our children. The gospel message guards us this week. It guards us from materialism. It guards us from envy or pride or vanity. Let's by faith view the Son of God lying in a manger. The Ancient One, the King of Kings. And my prayer this Christmas week when we celebrate Christmas this week is we would adore Him. We'd wake up Christmas morning and just thank You, Lord. So humbling that you would choose the lowly and the weak. So humbling that you would be a God who fulfills all your promises to us. And the two effects as I've studied these passages this week, the two effects on my soul that I pray happens in your soul this week. Number one is gratitude. Let us be thankful. Let us be filled with gratitude. And let's direct that to God. Because he loves using insignificant things. He loves saving us not because we're impressive, but in spite of our insignificance. Let's be thankful to God. Let's be filled with joy. Let's wake up and say, thank you, Lord. The Savior was born this day. Thank you, God. We're always taught, and I love this. This is good, to, to, to be grateful. We teach our children, say thank you. Let's be grateful. Let's, let's give thanks for this gift. There is no greater gift than what Jesus has done for us. Let's say thank you to God this Christmas. The second effect on my soul has just been faith in God. Man, you study Micah 5 and you look at how God fulfilled it and it just gives you faith. God fulfills all of his promises. He has been faithful. He is faithful. He will be faithful because that's the kind of God he is. And he's not reluctant to be faithful. He's not doing it because he has to do it. He loves being faithful to us. He rejoices in it. He wants to proclaim it. He is a faithful God. So as we close the year and we look at the new year, let's have faith in God. Let's look back and say, God, you've been faithful. You chose us. Why would you do that? It's by your mercy and grace. We look back at Micah 5 and then we look forward and we see God has been faithful 
And God will be faithful. As we approach a new year, God is going to be faithful to us. Let's have faith in a God who keeps all his promises. Oh, come, let us adore him. Let's pray. Father, you have been so good to us. We could spend all morning just giving thanks for your goodness and grace. So I pray for every person here this morning, Lord. Fill us with joy this Christmas week. Fill us with faith this Christmas week. Fill us with gratitude. May we give you all the glory and praise and honor because it all belongs to you, Jesus Christ. May we this week transfer all the glory to you and help us, Lord, guard our hearts this week. May we not get caught up in worldliness or the things of this world. May we be filled with faith and joy in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let's stand together as we sing. You've been listening to a message given by Mike Pluniak during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.